If you're uh, new with us today, we have been going through um, a series of uh, talks for several weeks now called Lies We Believe. Essentially what we're trying to do is take uh, very common ideas that appear uh, harmless, but when analyzed in light of the scriptures, we find that they are not uh, quite true at all. Today we're going to come to one I think will be um, a lot of fun. Does it feel like it's 200 degrees in here to anybody else? Yes, we always argue about this every week. Morgan's shaking his head no. Um, Would someone that can fix that? Thank you. My vote counts, yours doesn't. Um, About two weeks ago, I was driving to the office, and I saw a bumper sticker on a car about a mile from here that said this. Not that. It said this. God, please protect me from your followers. What's your reaction to that? Uh, after I stopped laughing, uh, my, my heart kind of broke because I, I think you get that. We probably understand why someone would believe that enough to plaster it on their car so they could uh, tell everybody about it. It's completely understandable that someone would put that on their car, right? Uh, and in one sense, I think that person might have done that because we deserve it. Uh, in some ways, Christians have gained a uh, bad name for ourselves. By far the greatest relational pain I have personally known has been through the church. I'm not talking to any of you in particular, but... This is not a particularly easy experience when you do it the way it's supposed to be done. Many churches turn out to be cruel, harsh, cold, and insensitive. They're anything but places of grace and hope and love. And many who call themselves Christians turn out not to represent the name of Christ very well at all. Have you had that experience? Have you been that person? Sometimes we arrogantly and self-righteously become cocky in our faith because we've obeyed the rules and other people haven't. So we turn things like uh, reading the Bible and sexual purity and kindness to other people into sort of clubs that we beat other people up with who haven't done it as well as we have. You see how crazy that is when you stop back and, and look at it? But Other times we confuse the commands of God for our own personal preferences. And so we end up confronting each other and other people over things that we think are God's commands, but they turn out to be nothing more than personal preference. And folks can see that through that very well. Sometimes we take our own church's traditions and turn them into the gold standard. So everybody else has to do it exactly the way we've done it, or there's something wrong with them. And invariably, people realize that's not true. And everybody else but us seems to get that. So we take methods and turn them into the only way through which we can have a good experience. Now, social media has only sought to exacerbate the problem. Because now everybody has a voice. So any knucklehead can get on the computer and blast out something in the name of Christ that 
can be either completely true or total garbage, but it's out there. And so we end up saying things, blasting them publicly that we would never actually sit down and say to one another face to face. So honestly, in many ways, I get why someone might put that bumper sticker on their car. We've earned it. But in another way, I think there's something much deeper going on. There's something much more systemic at work when people feel that way. Modern Western Christianity assumes that my only spiritual responsibility is to myself. We very, very deeply, fundamentally believe that religion is private. It's between God and me. Never God and us. And so when there is opportunity to live out faith publicly, it becomes something we merely do as individuals in a room full of people. And I think that way of thinking about Christianity has deeply impacted us. So in other words, it's fine to believe whatever mumbo-jumbo you want about some God. As long as that's between you and that, that God. But the moment you seek to say that has something to do with anybody else, then we've crossed a line that just cannot be crossed. God and me, that's fine, but God and we, no way. Do you have any idea how deeply that way of thinking has impacted you? My guess is if I could sit down with each one of you over a cup of coffee, I would be very jittery when I was finished, but... (laughs) What we would find, I honestly believe, is almost every single person in this room thinks that. And you just don't realize it. And you think it to such an extent that you think it's actually what this says. That spiritual autonomy, God in you, is the way God has set life up. It's almost impossible to escape this. Because it is the air we breathe. Everything around us tells us that. We assume individual spiritual reality is reality. Me and God, not God and us. And that literally impacts everything. It impacts, just for one example, the way we tend to sit in this room. We tend to think, I'm coming as an individual to hear from, grow in, sing, rejoice, in God, not I'm gathering with God's people in order that we could do that. So if it's possible that we would do that in this activity, it's pretty easy to see we can do it in other things. Are you with me? So all I want to do today is try and say the reason that bumper sticker exists is in one level because we've earned it, But at a much deeper level, it's because the way we think about spirituality. We assume religious individuality is the way God has wired the world. But is it? Now, the cat's out of the bag, of course. We're calling this season lies we believe. So I clearly don't believe that's what the Bible says. But before we get very far in this, let me say it a different way. Uh, How many of you have a brother biological or step? Okay, most of us. All right. So in the biblical story, the first two brothers that came on the scene were Cain and Abel. All right. Now, if you think your family is messed up, 
just remember the first two brothers, okay? Uh, maybe you know the story. Cain got angry at Abel, jealous. Jealousy consumed him to such a degree that the first brothers that ever existed, one of them killed the other. And so God came along and he had a question. Naturally, here's what he said. Genesis 4, 9. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Now God knew already, of course. This is for Abel's, uh, Cain's sake, not the Lord. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain, in his abdication of familial responsibility, and probably out of spite and fear of judgment, mocked at God and said, Am I my brother's keeper? We've been saying it ever since. Humanity has been saying that ever since. But is it true? Is it true we're free from obligation to each other? Is it true that my only spiritual responsibility is to myself? Is it true that godly religion is a personal, private matter? No, 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 no. But gosh, is it hard to realize that that's not true. My dear friends, if we're talking about how Christians should treat non-Christians, then Who am I to judge? Or I'm not my brother's keeper is actually completely true. That is to be our posture towards those who do not yet know Christ. But the moment someone says, I believe in God and I've confessed Him as my Lord and Savior and I want to spend the rest of my life following Him because of what He did for me at the cross, then everything changes. Our responsibilities towards one another are radically different. If we're referring to our relationships with one another as followers of Jesus, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be more destructive to our relationships than to believe I'm not my brother's keeper. So today, what I'd like to do is speak to those of you in the room specifically who are members of Church on Mill. Now, if, if you're not, and that's quite a few of you, um, I'm glad you're here. And many times we specifically want to speak into what's going on in your life. But today, you're off the hook, all right? So you're free to sleep or uh, leave or whatever it is you would like to do. Now, really what I'd encourage you to do is to listen in. Because what we're going to talk about today might give you real insight into what Christianity means. It might help you if you're not sure yet about Jesus. It might give you opportunity to know what does this particular group of people believe this book says about how we relate to one another. So church, Christianity is massively communal. God's vision is not merely saved individuals, but a rescued people. It's not that we would be individually caught up and go to heaven when we die, but that God would rescue us now and invite us into life together with Him for His glory. It turns out we are each other's keepers. As spiritual brothers and sisters, God gives us reciprocal responsibilities 
to care for one another. Now, if we had told you ahead of time and you brought a sack lunch and maybe a sleeping bag, we could spend the day together. And we could walk through the dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times that God tells us, live this way towards each other. But you didn't do that. I don't see any sack lunches or sleeping bags. So we're going to cover just five. Is that okay? I want to take five snapshots from Scripture that say, here's how we care for each other. Here's how God designs us as a church family to interact with one another. This is not all the Bible has to say. It's actually just a tiny sample. But my goal is not that you would retain all these passages we'll look at, but that you kind of receive a shotgun of the way God says we should relate to one another. So here's the first one. We care for one another in times of hardship. God says we are each other's keepers. And one of the ways we go about that is when one of us faces something that's difficult, that's hard, that's taxing, God's design is that we wouldn't go through that alone, but that we go through it, to, go through it together. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Last week, I read that passage to Abby, and she laughingly says, Jeez, Dad, that's a lot of comfort. That's exactly the point. The church ought to be a place in which there is no shortage of comfort, in which there is no person facing something and facing it alone, where we trust each other enough to be honest about the things we're going through. And we take the risk then of seeking to comfort one another. Our practical experience of the comfort of God will most often come through the tangible presence of God's people. The way in which we interact with each other are the very tools through which God uses to encourage us through times of hardship. Now when you're with somebody who's facing deep affliction, they're in a time of crisis, don't mess it up by talking. The majority of the time, what we need in in hardship is not words. We need presence. Because it's through that presence that we're reminded of the presence of God. So it turns out we, we are, friends, each other's keepers. We're to comfort each other. Now the second one I'd like to show you, I'd love if you turn with me to Romans chapter 12. If you have a Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 12 gives us a great picture of a second way in which we're to care for each other. Romans 12. The whole chapter really does a a magnificent job of this, but I just want to show you one section, and it's going to tell us this. It's going to say that we care for each other by serving each other. We care for each other by serving each other. It says Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone... Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members. And so the members do not have the same function. What's he talking about? He's talking about your physical body. God gave you 
one mouth and two ears for a reason. God gave you two hands for a reason. God gave you legs to do what they're supposed to do. All your inside parts that we don't want to talk about, God gave us those in order that our bodies would function the way they're supposed to function. Have you stubbed your toe any time recently? You have. Good. Your whole body was well aware of the fact that you stubbed your toe, right? The whole body works together. If something, if any part doesn't work, the whole body is aware that something isn't working correctly. Paul's using that illustration to talk about us, the people of God, that we form collectively one body, the body of Christ. It's just an illustration. Reading on, verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, so the members don't have the same function, so we, though we are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in the portion of our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. If you're here today and God has saved you, then God has given you a special gift, a spiritual gift that He would have you use, not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of the body of Christ. Not primarily to get stuff done, but in order that we could be changed and change each other as we minister and serve to one another. Now that's done in formal ministries. It's done by those of you who came early today and you did things in order to help us do what needed to be done today. But that's just a tiny fraction, actually, of what Paul's talking about here. I think he's much more talking about the 24 hours a day, seven days a week that that don't comprise that three hours or so that we gather here. As we care for love, tend to bless one another in the unique ways God has designed you and gifted you to do it. So do you know the ways God has gifted you? Are you aware of the fact that God has uniquely shaped you to do something to bless us? Do you know that? Part of the most life-giving thing you can possibly do is serve in that way. It's incredible what happens when someone's aware of the way God's gifted them and they actually do it. Now, how do you know that? How do you figure that out? There's all kinds of goofy tests you can Google out on the Internet that can walk you through spiritual gifts and can try and jog the way you've been living in order to help you understand what your gift might be. Honestly, I think most of those are garbage because the way you find out how you're gifted is not by taking a survey. It's by living the Christian life. And you find that something is relatively easy for you. And you do it pretty effectively. And it gives you joy. And in healthy churches, you find other people saying, hey, when you did that, it really blessed me and helped me and encouraged me. That's the way you figure out what your gift is. So you can't do that on the sidelines. You've got to roll up your sleeves and get involved and figure out, by trial and error, what the Lord has gifted you in. Now that will mean there's lots of trial and error, right? But that's okay. 
And this is an environment through which we can learn how to serve one another. Now, what's another way we care for each other? Third, I just want to give you five. We care for one another in times of sin. Now, this one will be more difficult. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if this is your church home, and if this can't be it, then go somewhere you can find it. But if this is the body of Christ God has called you to be a part of, then intrinsically part of what that means is that we're called to help each other see the stuff that we don't see. We're called to help each other when we've tripped up, when we've found ourselves caught in things that are destructive to us, that we would lovingly, gently, tenaciously love each other enough to point those things out to one another in order that we could live differently. God calls us not merely to look at our behavior, but to help each other come to see the heart behind the behavior in order that God could change that and see us living more fruitful, free lives. So to, to Pat and Tad and Kent and Carol and Hansley and Abby and Randy and Becky and Nathaniel and Katina and Patrick and Jan and Jill, I've got something I need to talk to you about. There's some sin in your life. That's not the way that's supposed to be done. Right? I went through yesterday and listed not the people that I thought I needed to go to, but the people I can specifically tell you who have come to me and said, hey, that seemed a little off. Are you sure that that's the way you want to be living? Was that a good thing to say? Every one of those men and women have done that for me. And far from questioning their love for me because they came to me, it actually assured me of the fact that these people love God enough that they're willing to have a a tough conversation with me. Now, I didn't agree with the vast majority of them, but (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm personally thankful for each of you that I just named because you've done what the Scriptures tell you to do. How many of you could say that about somebody else in the room? I fear it's far fewer of us than it ought to be. I think that we tend to think love is allowing that person to figure out in their own way that this is not a good thing to do. All the while, they're plunging headlong over a cliff into pain and hardship and difficulty. When all it might take is a loving, gentle, private conversation. So God expects us to keep each other, to help each other. 
A fourth way that the Lord tells us to care for each other is to care for one another if someone feels we've harmed them. Now, this one's just amazing to me. Matthew 5, Jesus says, If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you. So the way we would say that is, if you're at church and you're standing and singing, or you're listening to a sermon, or you're about to put a gift in the offering plate, and as you're doing that activity, if you remember, there is somebody in the body of Christ who seems to have something against me. It doesn't make any difference if it's true or not. There there seems to be some discord between us. Not you with them, but them with you. Then here's what God tells you to do. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Is that astonishing? Or what? God says, don't put that in the offering plate. Don't sing that song. Don't sit there and pray. And for God's sake, don't listen to another sermon. Get up. Go find that person. Say, have I offended you in some way? Is there something I can do to make right what may be between us? And then go and worship God. God cares so much about our relationships that he says, don't do this if there's something wrong here. So we are each other's keepers. We are to love each other enough to go to one another in our sin. One more. And this one will be the hardest. That's why I've saved it for last. Look at 1 Corinthians 5 with me. I only ask you to look at this one other scripture. 1 Corinthians 5. Now let me state it and then explain it, read the scripture and state it again. And my hope is that maybe, 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 by the power of God, you would not misunderstand my intention. We're to care for one another to the extent that we disfellowship in rare cases of significant, unrepentant, arrogant sin. Now here's what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians 5 is Paul writing to a church in Corinth where there was a man who said with his mouth, I am a Christian, who said with his mouth, God has saved me, who said, the most important thing to me is to live for God, to follow God, to love God. And then he went home and he had sex with what was probably his stepmother. And then he went back to church and he did it again. And then he went home and he did that again. And this was public knowledge. And the church seemed to say, that's okay. He says that he loves God. Now, the massive problem with that, of course, is that is such a grotesque, heinous, awful sin that... With one, I don't mean to be crude, but with one body part, he says, I love God. And with another, he says, I don't. And it's a lot easier to speak with one and not the other, right? So Paul is saying, 
This man is claiming that he follows God. And you have gone to him and you've talked to him about this maybe, but nothing's changing. So the picture isn't uh, this person has gotten caught up in some sin they can't seem to stop. And they're repentant and they're broken, but they still find themselves back in it again. You have something like that, right? Does anybody want to say what yours is? No, but you have it. For the rest of your life, you will continue to struggle with sin. So this picture isn't sinless perfection. It's not, I'm broken and I know it. It's, I'm sinning and I don't care. It's, I can say this with my mouth, but then it doesn't make any difference what I live like. Are you getting the picture? Okay, so Paul's writing to that situation. To a church that says, as long as you say you love Christ, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And here's what he says to them in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter, so he's referencing some other letter he wrote. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now please hear this closely. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedies, or the swindlers, or the adulterers. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. In other words, friends, the world is full of people caught in destructive behaviors. We are hardwired to be worshipers. We will either worship God or we'll worship ourselves. When we worship ourselves, things begin to break down. And so we seek to escape that through sin. That's all sin is at the macro level. It's the worship of self. And the world is full of that, right? So Paul says, when I told you, don't hang out with those kinds of people, I wasn't talking about the larger world. I was talking about those who say, speak, I follow God, but they don't with their lifestyle. So one of my least favorite times of the year is when the Southern Baptist Convention gathers. Because invariably what happens is some resolution is passed and then it's broadcast in the public media. And it is always a resolution about that. World, don't do this. It's ridiculous. It is the exact opposite of what Paul says. So we, we point outward to the actions of everybody else and we don't point inward the rest of the thing he's going to say. Now listen on. I hope I still have a job. <laughs> Verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immortal of this, immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the adulterers. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or if he's an adulterer, a reviler, a drunker, a swindler, don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Could there be anything in the Bible more contrary to the way we think? What Paul is actually describing is 
the most loving thing a church could possibly do. That if someone for not days, not weeks, but months is continuing to do something that is drinking poison, that person after person after person has gone to him or her and pleaded with them, not And they arrogantly say, that's not wrong. God doesn't care. I'll do whatever I want. That with those words, they may be indicating, I have no reason to believe I have security before God. And so the most unloving thing a church can possibly do is pat them on the back and say, that's fine, continue. Because we are then saying to them, we believe you're saved where God is saying, you have no reason to think you are. Now, this is, is rare. This shouldn't be what happens every Sunday at church gathers. But if it's never there, then we're missing an element of what church is, of how we're to care for one another. Now, these are merely five of dozens of the ways God says we are each other's keepers. The context for this caring is meaningful church membership. Membership is the commitment to a shared life. It's a way of saying, I want to live us together before God because I can't do that on my own. Because I need you to encourage and spur me on to life with God. It's not like joining the gym, paying your dues, and never showing up. It's the sacrificial involvement in the life of the whole church. Our next Compass or members meeting is this coming Sunday night, a week from now. We would invite you to come if you're not yet a member and hear the stories of how God is doing that kind of work. And if you're interested in joining and you've not yet done that, or you just need a refresher on what that means, our next membership class will begin March 2nd. I'm thrilled that after beating up on you, I can tell you that I believe we're getting this more than we ever have before. It is uncommon now for me to go as your pastor four or five days and not hear someone saying to somebody else, wasn't it great when we got together and read the scriptures or prayed or brought a meal or helped you move? That's, that's becoming the, the norm. That's all we're saying today. Is lean further into that kind of shared life. Now this entire conversation hinges on one simple truth. One thought. 1 John four nineteen. We love because He first loved us. You have no reserve from which to live that kind of life if you have yet to know the love of God. You will simply become bitter, uptight, grumpy, and less pleasant to be around. If you seek to give your life away like that, apart from receiving God's love for you in Christ, God initiates. We say yes to Him. 
If we're totally caught up in the truth of the gospel, then we can't help but pour out our lives to each other in this way. God's perfect love for us drives away any fear that keeps me from being your keeper and allowing you to be mine. Friends, if God has completely forgiven us, if we're utterly accepted by Him, if there's no wrath of God left for us, then what's left to be afraid of? Honestly. If there's nothing but goodness from God towards us, then what are we afraid of? Why would we not give our lives away to each other? Friends, Christianity isn't something you tack on to life. You don't merely add it. When the gospel invades your heart, it explodes your former way of life in order that we would live life together to the glory of God. Now, one of the most important ways God's given us as a body to demonstrate these truths is something called the Lord's Supper. And we want to end today by practicing what believers for thousands of years have gathered together uh, to do. And that is simply to take a piece of bread and a cup and to remember in it the body of Christ that was broken for us in order that, first of all, we could be made right with God, but then that we could be made right with each other. We take a cup and we remember that our sin, our turning of good things into ultimate things, our self-worship was so severe that the only way to fix that was for God Himself to come and give Himself for us. That the body of Christ was broken and His blood was shed. And that is a uniquely shared experience. There is no case in the Bible of that happening somebody alone. It's always God's people together doing this in order to remember what He's done for us. It's us taking this in order that we would pledge shared life together for the glory of God. Our church has a couple of distinctives that we use to constantly remind ourselves of the truth of what Scripture says about our lives together. And I've taken just three of those, and before we observe the Lord's Supper together, I wonder if we could repeat them to each other. And then I would invite you after that to uh, stand and to go to one of these stations. There's two in the front, one at the coffee bar, one at the back. Go with someone, take the bread and the cup, pray together, and remember that Christ's body was broken and His blood was shed for you. So why don't we go ahead and stand and we'll read the first one together. Sean, if you would put that up there. Gospel-centered. Let's read this together. Gospel-centered. The story of the Bible is the gospel. God's amazing plan to restore all things to Himself. The gospel is the good news that God has graciously provided a way for sinful people to have a right, loving relationship with Him. Jesus is the way. He left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died in our place. Miraculously, He rose from the dead 
to demonstrate victory over sin, death, and the devil. Through the sacrificial death of Jesus, all who turn from their sin, confess Jesus as their Lord, are given eternal life. This happens in an instant, yet God's work in a person does not stop there. The ongoing aspect of salvation will continue for the rest of a person's life. Therefore, the gospel is for every day. Let's do the next one, Sean. Transformation-minded. The Christian life is a life of grace-driven progressive holiness. Followers of Jesus are on a path of being supernaturally changed by God in order to live in increasingly Christ-like ways. Real change is possible and even promised. Our character ought to more and more frequently and robustly reflect the life of Jesus. And finally, devoted to each other. As a local church, being an interconnected, interdependent family of believers, we pursue genuine Christian living together. This can be a reality because the gospel affects not just our relationships with God, but also our relationships with people. People who know Jesus can be in harmony with others who know Jesus. We're literally brothers and sisters in Christ who need and rely on one another. If you believe those things, and if Christ has saved you from your sin. My first question to you would be, is there someone in the room that you need to do what Jesus said in Matthew to? You need to go and say, is there an offense that we need to shore up? And if there isn't any, then after I pray, I would invite you to go to one of these stations, take the Lord's Supper together, and rejoice in what Christ has done for us. And if somebody comes to mind, do that first, and then go. Let's pray, and then I'd invite you to come. Jesus, thank you, Father, that... What we will do here today is not some weird, bizarre, tiny little thing that some little band of people that are a little bit crazy are doing. Rather, God, we are a little tiny group caught up in an enormous stream of millions of people who have found the cross to be true and the resurrection to be true and therefore all of life to be lived for the glory of God. Thank you, God, that your body was broken and your blood was shed in order that we could be made right with you and with each other. As we take this, may we do it not as individuals, but as your redeemed people. In Jesus' name we pray.